Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. My name is Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Meditation on Mortality for the first Sunday in Lent, March 1st, 2009. Beginning this Ash Wednesday, Christians around the world begin their observance of Lent. Since about the 4th century, Christians have observed the 40 weekdays before Easter as a season of reflection, repentance, fasting, abstinence, and acts of mercy. Perhaps you'll see a friend this week with ashes conspicuously smeared in the middle of her forehead. Maybe your colleague has mentioned giving up chocolate or alcohol. In a culture that encourages indulgence, hubris, and bravado, Wednesday's ashes signify an outrageously countercultural act of humility. As a time when we befriend our brokenness, acknowledge that not all is well with our souls, and lament the pain of so many people in our world, Lent appeals to me as one of the most sensible and brutally realistic liturgical seasons of the year. Ash Wednesday gets its name from the liturgical rite of dabbing ashes on the forehead of worshipers. The ashes remind us of our mortality. In words that are often read at Lent, God spoke to Adam in Genesis 3.19, For dust you are, and to dust you will return. In the Bible, ashes are also a symbol of mourning, 2 Samuel 13.19 and Jeremiah 6.26. They're a stark metaphor that even Jesus invokes in Matthew 11.21. Ashes also signify an inner attitude of repentance, humility, self-denial, and abstinence. Interestingly enough, on this point, science and Christianity agree. In his book entitled Beyond Science, my favorite writer on Christianity and religion, the Cambridge University particle physicist and Anglican priest John Polkinghorne, writes the following, It is sure as can be that humanity in all forms of carbon-based life will prove a transient episode in the history of the cosmos which is to say, from stardust we came, and to stardust we shall return. Lenten humility is not an end in itself. Some act of morbid self-hatred, introspection, or misanthropic self-denial. And unlike the nihilist implications of the scientific outlook, Lent anticipates and culminates in the Easter celebration of resurrection life. Whatever else Christians believe, we believe that God and Christ will vanquish sin and death. And so in the end, we're the ultimate optimists who affirm life. But until then, Lent reminds us that Easter's celebration of life passes through the narrow and bitter way of death. This is true in a figurative sense, but it's also true in a literal sense. Jesus rose from the dead, but not before he died 
a real death. Our hope is for the same. And that's why at this time of year, Christians find it entirely healthy and human to remember death. Memento morum. Whereas Christians anticipate and reflect upon death, society tends to deny it. We idolize strength, vigor, and youth, and marginalize the weak, the elderly, and the infirm. Age spots, decreased energy, wrinkles, aches, and pains are all causes for diets, cosmetic surgery, pill popping, but also, almost never for a reality check. When death comes, as it surely will, morticians make our corpses appear as lifelike as possible, and mourners insist on, quote, how beautiful and peaceful the dead body looks. This denial of death finds deep roots in the Hebrew scriptures. Consider the most pernicious lie ever told. When the serpent told Eve in Genesis chapter 3 verse 4, Surely you will not die. This lie, so mysterious back then, so irresistible today, harms us. For while it's normal and natural to avoid the unpleasant, to persist in loving this lie perpetuates the ultimate death wish. In 1974, the cultural anthropologist Ernest Becker won the Pulitzer Prize for his book, The Denial of Death. The fear of our eventual extinction is so terrifying, so anxiety-producing, Becker argued, that virtually all cultures construct elaborate schemes to deny our mortality and enable us to believe that we are immortal. In fact, Becker believed that perpetuating this denial of death constitutes one of the chief functions of culture. But denying death is disastrous. It causes us to form illusory false selves, and even worse, according to Becker, on the social level, it foments all the horrific violence and aggression against others that we see in our world today, because we must prove other death denials as false and even eradicate them, else ours is exposed as a lie. If you're lucky, long before death, reality will hit hard. Life will slap you around, and the older you get, the harder it becomes to believe the serpentine denial of death. Friends die. Kids grow older and leave. Your long-time neighbors move. The newspaper obituaries suddenly provoke reflective reading rather than idle curiosity. Your physical capacities of body and mind degenerate, slowly perhaps, but nevertheless just as relentlessly. Christians, however, don't wait for such a serendipitous wake-up call to move them beyond culture's denial. At our best, we don't evade, lie about, flee from, or candy-coat the specter of death. Rather, with the Lenten practice of actively contemplating our death, we preempt the inevitable. In Becker's words, adopting a phrase from Luther, the Christian seeks to, quote, Taste death with the lips of your living body, 
so that you can know emotionally that you are a creature who will die. End quote. This counsel to remember death was standard wisdom for the early church fathers. In the 4th century, Gregory of Nazianzus echoed Plato when he suggested that our present life ought to be a, quote, meditation upon death. He advised his friends, Philagrius, to, quote, live instead of the present, the future, and to make this life a meditation and practice of death. To the priest Photius, he wrote, Our cares and our attention are concentrated on one thing only, our departure from this world. For this departure, we prepare ourselves and gather our baggage as prudent travelers would do. <coughs> In his treatise on virginity, Athanasius encouraged readers to, quote, recall your exodus every hour, keep death before your eyes on a daily basis, remember before whom you must appear. And in the 6th century, John Climacus advised to, quote, let the memory of death sleep and awake with you. And so, too, in the 6th century, St. Benedict, who in his rule advised his monks to, quote, see death before one daily. By contemplating my death, I live more fully in the present moment and embrace and affirm all that is life-giving. I prepare myself for that most inevitable, important date with destiny, when I will pass from time to eternity. St. Gregory of Sinai in the 13th century wrote, At the moment of our death, we will all know for certain what is the outcome of our life. And so, instead of living today in ways that death will render meaningless, if not tragic, I alter my course here and now. Anticipation, then, functions as preparation. In his book, Tortured Wonders, Rodney Clapp recounts a person who chose Ash Wednesday for her one and only church appearance of the year. St. Bartholomew's Episcopal Church in New York City stands at the corner of Park Avenue and 51st Streets, at the epicenter of that island's remarkable concentration of wealth, power, business, and entertainment. One Ash Wednesday morning, the priests had begun the ritual of smearing ashes on the foreheads of worshipers with the solemn words from Genesis 3.19, Dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And then a gorgeous young woman, impeccably dressed, came forward and knelt at the altar. The young woman was visibly nervous, and as she knelt, the priest realized that she wanted to speak. As he leaned forward to trace an ashen cross on her forehead, she whispered, Father, I'm a model. I know, only, I, know I only have a few years, and then I will be too old for this work. My body is aging and I can hardly admit it to myself. I do it once a year at this service. So rub the ashes on, rub them hard. 
For further reflection, consider the two books. One, Joan Didion, The Year of Magical Thinking. Named one of the top five nonfiction books of 2005 by the New York Times, Didion's book meditates on her husband's sudden death from a massive heart attack at the dinner table. And secondly, Julian Barnes, Nothing to be Frightened of. The British novelist and atheist wonders if he can assign any meaning to his life if only extinction awaits him after death. Named one of the top five nonfiction books of 2008 by the New York Times. For books this week, I review Charles Marsh, Wayward Christian Soldiers, Freeing the Gospel from Political Captivity. New York, Oxford Press, 2007, 243 pages. In his essay, Evangelical Theology in the 19th Century, the Swiss theologian Karl Barth described what he called a certain black day in August 1914 when he was shocked to learn that 93 German theologians and writers, many of them his seminary professors and including the famous Adolf von Harnack, had signed a document endorsing the war efforts of Wilhelm II. Now, fast forward to the so-called Land Letter of October 3, 2002, in which five prominent evangelical leaders supported Bush's preemptive invasion of Iraq. Richard Land, Charles Colson, Bill Bright, James Kennedy, and Carl Herbster. In fact, they weren't alone. A Pew poll of April 2003 indicated that 87% of white evangelicals supported the invasion. In fairness, many evangelicals opposed the war and the broader identification of Christianity with Bush. Charles Marsh, professor of religion at the University of Virginia, was one such person. It would be nice to believe that by now conservative evangelicals have been duly chastened and that Marsh's book is no longer necessary. But that's probably wishful thinking. The identification of the gospel with American exceptionalism remains a disturbing example of the cultural captivity of the church and a perennial temptation. Even though the resounding defeat of Bush by Barack Obama now dates his book, Marsh's Jeremiad and Lament remains a sobering analysis of what he calls the colossal wreck of the evangelical witness. In their Faustian bargain, Marsh argues, evangelicals gained political power and betrayed the gospel. Quote, we have turned God into an appendage of the American way of life, acted with utter contempt toward the global evangelical and ecumenical church, and at times even presume that the military powers of our nation act in vicarious representation of Jesus Christ the Lord." End quote. Marsh points readers to more reliable witnesses with heavy doses of Bart and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He commends the likes of Will Campbell, 
Reinhold Niebuhr, Paul Tillich, and others for ways of addressing conformity, compromise, and accommodation. In the last part of his book, Marsh recommends what he calls a, quote, trinity of spiritual dispositions, end quote. Silence, stillness and waiting, and then accountability to global Christianity. And then finally, dissent as, quote, a vital part of confessing Jesus Christ as Lord. Charles Marsh, Wayward Christian Soldiers. For film this week, I review a movie called Flow from the year 2008. Thousands have lived without love, wrote W.H. Auden, but not one without water. And so, every year, about two million people, mainly children, die due to the lack of clean, reliable water, more than who die from AIDS or wars. This hard-hitting documentary looks at what might right rightly be called the most basic of all human rights in the single most important security issue of our day, water. The film starts in the United States, but moves to Bolivia, South Africa, and India. By interviewing leading activists, most, most notably the famous physicist Vandana Shiva, it hammers away at the commodification and commercialization of water by the likes of the IMF, the World Bank, Coke, and Nestle's. A steady flow of facts and figures accompanies the powerful images. Best of all, the film allows the poor from all over the world, people who are denied this basic right, to speak for themselves and to tell their own stories. The makers of the film <coughs> have proposed that the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights add to its charter the right to water. The name of the film is Flow from the year 2008. And finally, for the first Sunday in Lent, we've taken a Lenten prayer from Father Thomas Hopko. Thomas Hopko teaches at the Russian Eastern Orthodox Seminary in New York. The title of his book is The Lenten Spring. <coughs> Thomas Hopko with a Lenten prayer. The Lenten spring shines forth, the flower of repentance. Let us cleanse ourselves from all evil, crying out to the giver of light, glory to you, O lover of men. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, March 1st, the first Sunday in Lent. My name is Daniel B. Clendenin.